0: The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The
1: views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or
2: affiliate. We
3: choose the heart of on the one. On That's one small step for man, one giant
2: leap.
1: Everybody and welcome once again to another episode of Talking Space. This is Talking Space, episode 211 for the week of March 15th, 2010. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight are Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene.
3: Good evening, Sawyer. Happy to be here.
1: Glad you're here as well. And Gina Hurley. Hey, Sawyer. How are you? I'm great, thanks. And Mark Ratterman, welcome to you as well.
2: And with a 3, 2, 1, let's go.
1: All right, and the liftoff of Talking Space episode 211. So actually, that's a perfect thing. While we're talking about blasting off, let's take a look at the space shuttle. The next mission currently up is Discovery on STS-131. However, they are currently experiencing a slight problem. One of the valves that they currently have, which involves helium, has been having some pressure issues. At this point, we believe it is directly related to the OMS, or Orbital Maneuvering Systems, pods. And could possibly cause a rollback of Discovery if they cannot find a solution in time or if they cannot get it fixed. So, basically, STS-131 could be in trouble of slipping back. It was already scheduled for March 18th, and uh, now it's looking like the current date of April 4th or 5th may not stay. What do you think?
0: Well, if they find something wrong, they're probably, I don't think they're going to have many, much of an alternative but to, uh, to roll the bird back and... Uh and go find out uh, what's going on and go fix it. Uh, there may be a slight chance, who knows, that Atlantis might fly before Discovery does. So you know, I don't know where Atlantis is in the pipeline right now. So I you know, we'll, we'll just have to see what uh, what transpires in uh, the next couple of days. I know they're go- they're running tests now on on the uh, on the OMS pod and they're running tests now on on the, on the vehicle to see what's going on, and uh, we'll soon find out.
2: It just kind of brings up that uh, spaceflight, even for a a veteran like the shuttle and the shuttle program, is not routine. There's so many parts, so many pieces, so many little things that, you know, a a small glitch, and that's probably all this is, can have a lot of impact. So hopefully it'll be minor and be a good workaround or maybe just a one-time thing that won't show up again. Sincerely hope that it doesn't show up again.
3: Well, they're trying to fix it while it's on the launch pad currently. Well, I don't know when they're going to actually come up with a decision to say they can't do that and roll it back. Do we have a date or a target for well, that decision?
1: Right now they say, uh, to quote from NASA.gov, there's still a few days of contingency left in the schedule to make the target launch date of April 5th. Plus they're trying to get Discovery's payload out to the pad starting Friday morning at 12 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. So... Not sure about that, but I have a feeling they're going to try and get it done before the end of the week because, like they said, they only have a few days left.
2: They are they were talking late this week for completion of the testing and make a decision.
1: So we'll probably hear something next week then
0: about what's going on.
1: Right, because first they have to calibrate the ground support equipment and its test panel. They have to make sure that's calibrated before they can even start the test, which would be to bring the valves and the pipes that are failing up to the pressure they would be at launch time and see if there is still the leak and see what's going on exactly.
3: There's a lot of redundancy in this valve system, and there is a possibility that they may launch as is, knowing that this is um, a limitation they're going to have in flight.
2: Hard to predict uh, what their flight rules would allow.
3: Yeah, I'd, that's
0: something that uh, we'd, I'd, I'd have to go ahead and do some homework on. I don't know what the flight rule is. So.
1: Me neither. But basically at this point they're saying that it's either a leak or the fact that the valve itself is remaining in the open position when it is expected to be closed. And this is the uh, pipeline that is going towards the fuel helium tank by the Wright Reaction Control System. Moving along, but at the same time staying in Cape Canaveral, Florida, just recently SpaceX successfully test-fired the engines of the Falcon 9. The test of the engines was on the launch pad, which lasted for a total of 3.5 seconds. This was after a couple of days beforehand. They attempted to do the same thing, but the engines shut themselves down a couple of seconds before the test fire was supposed to begin due to high levels of helium that were built up. So congratulations to SpaceX, and does this mean that we have a new future in commercial space that will be approaching very soon, or what does this mean?
0: One test doesn't make the future, but it's... uh but it does speak volumes, uh, even uh, when the uh, the first test didn't work out. It spoke to the fact that uh, all the safeguards that SpaceX had built into the Falcon 9 actually work, and they did do a, uh, a successful test firing thereafter. I think it's a good start, but uh, whether, or whether or not it really, really heralds the future, that remains to be seen. One of the things that I did notice, and I, I did not, I, I will confess, I did not see the test firings live, one of the things I did notice is they didn't have like a PAO there or anything like that sort of uh, narrating the test firing or anything like that. They just sort of did it. I don't know if that, you know, I think uh, maybe they missed an opportunity there to uh, go ahead and uh, drum up some good press for themselves. They could have been extolling, you know, the the, uh, the virtues of SpaceX and and the virtues of the Falcon 9 vehicle and, and of course, the, uh, the, dra- the upcoming Dragon vehicle that's going to sit on top of there. Um, something uh, I believe Wayne Hale had fired out on Twitter he said too that uh, you know it's, it's kind of difficult getting information out of these guys so you know a lot of people have have uh, some vested interest in there so you know I'm I'm kind of wondering from a p from a uh, public affairs aspect did they really did they blow it
1: yeah i'm not sure because taking a look at uh, spaceflightnow.com, their coverage of Falcon Nine. They said, "quote unquote," officials did not give reports on the status of the Falcon Nine countdown, despite multiple requests for information.
0: Yeah, and that—that that I think was the point that Wayne Hale was bringing up. So maybe uh, maybe SpaceX needs to needs to kind of sort of work on their their, their public relations division. But uh, all in all, from a from an engineering standpoint, it sounds like it was a it was a good flight, you know, or a good uh, test
1: firing. All right. Well, while we're talking about the future of space exploration, boy, does it seem like everything today has a segue. Coming up in the very near future, actually on Tax Day in the United States, President Obama is set to head down to the space coast in Florida. And while he's there, he will give a talk about the future of NASA, clearing up all of the buzz going around, especially after the original unveiling. Of the 2011 fiscal year budget, which included the cancellation of the Constellation program. First off, I think it was a bad time to do it on tax day, but what do you think about the whole announcement?
0: Ultimately, to paraphrase one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, I think it is going to be full of sound and fury and ultimately signify nothing. Um, alas, I think this is going to go the same way the, the healthcare debate went, which was just nowhere. I think it's going to be a great PR. Event for Mr. Obama, but I don't think it's going to go ahead and and uh, yield any or bear any fruit. I think it's just going to go over what uh, uh, what was already covered in um, you know in in previous events and in previous outings. I will say too, I think uh, NASA Watch reported either sometime last week or maybe it was the beginning of this week that Rahm Emanuel now is getting involved in this too. So. Should be very interesting to watch. It'll be great political theater, but uh, whether or whether or not it's really going to calm any frayed nerves on the Space Coast or anywhere else for that matter, I don't think so. I I just don't think it's going to go anywhere.
1: Right. I know you said it's going to be good publicity for him. I don't think it's going to be good at all, not only just because it's tax day and not many people are really going to care, but if they do care, it's kind of like, okay – we're now paying our taxes. We're paying more right now as we speak, as you speak technically uh, to President Obama, and you're talking about space exploration. Again, to the public, they don't know much about it. So I think it's a mix of timing-wise and everything like that with the whole health care debate and his popularity steadily declining. I don't think this is going to be good publicity. I think this is going to hurt him more than it's going to help him. Hey, gang, do you think the timing was, was uh, uh, deliberate?
3: I think it's a coincidence, really. I mean, the president, he's a busy guy. (laughs) I think it's probably when he could clear his schedule and book enough time to get down there. Uh, I also think he's probably waiting for some of the congressional stuff to cook between now and then, between either getting beyond a health care vote and um, allowing NASA to sort of let this sink in. I think, he, you know, the point of this is to talk about the new strategy of NASA and how Florida fits into it. I think it's unfortunate. And I think the president's walking into a little bit of a firestorm because everybody on the space coast is upset. If you watch last week's episode of this week in space, you know, they, they went into a diner and they talked to the people there knowing that, you know, when shuttle's over, uh, there's a lot of, they're going to lose a lot of business and they're going to have to lay people off
0: Causeway Diner sees about 170 people a day. We're we're busy. But a new independent job study says there are about 23,000 people in and around the Kennedy Space Center that will lose their jobs. That's 9,000 workers at the Space Center and about 14,000 people who don't work in the space industry. Just indirect jobs at places like this at Causeway Diner. Tough times ahead for places like this. They'll have layoffs of their own or potentially even worse.
1: There's always a chance to go out of business. I would definitely have to modify my, my mode of operations. Right now I currently have over 20 employees. I'm not going to need 20 employees if there's not all that, that amount of people in here. Well, They're the different. people that work at the Kennedy Space Center, they make a decent salary, they make very good money, they come to the diner, they eat, they go to the vet, they take their animals to the vet, they go to supermarkets, they get their hair done, they, they use a painter, they'll use a carpenter, they tile from the tile guy down the block.
0: 14,000 people like that are expected to also be laid off when space workers move away.
3: I mean, the ramifications of what this means for the space coast is tremendous. And even if there is a, a viable, thriving commercial spaceflight program, it's going to take a few years or more to get that going up to the level of the employment that Florida enjoys now from having the launch facility for our nation there.
2: In Florida, there's an organization called SpaceFlorida.gov, and um, they were organized through the state of Florida to strengthen their position as a leader in aerospace investment, exploration, commerce, so, you know, space-related for sure and kind of a, a central point to uh, to work with. And they made an announcement that... Uh, that they just secured property licenses, I guess, leases, uh, i not sure if that's the right term, for Space Launch Complex 46 and 36 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Mm-hmm. And that's going to open it up for uh, commercial utilization and from, uh, from what I read from Space Florida to ensure the U.S. remains competitive from a global perspective. So... There's a, there's a lot of plans being made, and uh, I know that that the, the state and the country wants uh, NASA to be part of it, but apparently there's people that see the writing on the wall and say, well, you know, the private industry and, and that component is going to be part of spaceflight in years to come, and let's position ourselves to where we can be in business. Uh,
0: spaceflorida.gov,
2: uh, preceded by a www.
1: And that will be included in the show notes.
0: Just as an aside, this might be a good time, too, to go ahead and plug our plans to possibly have another Twalking episode after the summit's over.
1: Indeed, we do have a couple of plans about that. And our good friend Mark Ratterman is organizing that. So can you give us a little bit more info, please, Mark?
2: Well, this is going to be a little wider scope than the uh, first show we did using Twalking, and that's tw. A-L-K dot in. And uh Twalken is a service that allows us to, along with our panel, to make another connection to a con essentially a conference line that as many people as want to dial into it. It'll cost you a long distance call to, to dial into this conference number. But anybody that wants to dial in there can listen and uh listen to our conversation. And at a certain point in the show, we'll open it up for comments so people that have been listening to us and putting up with us can join in and make their own, uh, you know, let their own opinions and thoughts be heard. And if you got questions, uh, I think it will add to our conversation to have the wider perspective of the, uh, the audience that we've got. We'll announce more about it as we get closer. It's not going to be immediately, but uh, – you can be sure it'll relate a lot to the things that we've been talking about
1: tonight. Sounds like a plan. And as we get closer, if anybody has any questions, you know where you can reach us, same places as always, our Facebook page, which you can search for talking space, our Twitter account, which is at talking space and our email address, talking space online at gmail.com.
2: Yeah. And personally, I'd be interested in seeing if this interests folks. So, uh, let one of us know, or or one of the uh, links that Sawyer just uh, gave you. You know, let us know. Let us know what you think. All
1: right. So, uh, Mark, why don't I stick with you because I believe you have our next topic as well. Yeah,
2: there was uh, some news today from uh, Washington, and when I, I I saw a little mention of it that uh, Jeff Faust, and that's uh, on Twitter, J E F F underscore F O U S T that uh he tweeted a whole series of uh quotes from uh NASA administrator Charlie Bolden at a uh business lunch. And uh what I was finding was WSBR. It turns out WSBR is Washington Space Business Roundtable. And I thought, okay, he's given a speech at a lunch and a keynote. What's this all about? And just as a as a thumbs up to WSBR, uh, they support the, what it is. They're having a silent auction in a couple of days, and, uh, and Administrator Bolden was, uh, was there at a luncheon to kick off this activity, and it uh, provides opportunities for Washington-area youth scholarships, curriculum enrichment, and supports some local school projects, so it uh, sounds like a great cause, and you have to appreciate the civic-mindedness. Of so many in government that support these things but back to uh, Jeff Faust he left a, a series of comments on Twitter that I'll just kinda skip through and it may be a little hard to retrieve them in days to come but this also was on March 16th and uh, I would guess midday at lunch Eastern Time so you can look for it that way but uh, he was a keynote speaker and he said that constellations should not be seen as a symbol of what the U.S. can do in spaceflight, we can do better. A new plan will allow us to utilize the ISS, develop commercial capabilities and technologies needed for sustainable exploration beyond low Earth orbit. He said, not true that the uh, administrator Bolden said, it's not true. There is no destination in the new plan. The ultimate destination is Mars, but we need to develop the tech to get there. He also said it's unfair to say that commercial space transportation capabilities are untried and untested. Tell that to the American workers who build the Atlas V. Uh, Commercial crew will give us redundant made-in-America capabilities. We don't want to be dependent on Soyuz for the next decade. And, of course, all of these are short kind of notes of his actual speech, Uh, not necessarily anything close to its entirety. So I would encourage folks to, uh, to go look that up.
0: Mark, I'll, I'll agree with you there. The Atlas V is not untried or untested. Atlas has been around for quite some time. Ditto the Delta. Uh, are they man-rated right now? Atlas was once, but that was how long ago, and that vehicle has changed uh, quite uh, uh, quite dramatically over the years um, to a point where it would have to be man-rated again. And uh, I believe Gene Krantz had described how difficult it was to man-rate the uh, the, Gem- the, uh, the Titan II uh, for Gemini, um, and uh, that was a rather long and arduous process. So I don't know if, if you can indeed throw, uh, throw a smaller vehicle on top of Atlas V or not, but that's, you know, a, a man-rated vehicle on top of Atlas V or not and go fly. So that still remains to be seen. Um, <clears throat> I'm all for... You know, getting out of the low Earth orbit business and getting NASA out of the low Earth orbit operations business. We've been in, we've been stuck in low Earth orbit since the 1970s with Skylab, and it's really, really time to go somewhere.
2: So low Earth orbit's kind of routine and uh, not worthy of our, uh, you know, sole focus.
0: Exactly, NASA, NASA is in the business of exploration. And we we've pretty much covered the low Earth orbit gamut now since I guess the 70s. And now, you know, until the end of the end of the shuttle program, which will either be this year or next. So we know how to do that. And, you know, maybe it's time to step aside and let let somebody else take over and, and, and do that. I'm all for that. However, I think NASA has to be given a mandate to go explore. To say that, well, we're going to go ahead and pause for a little bit and just sit here and, and develop all these new toys, uh, you know, without having a project, having having a loose project saying, well, our goal is Mars. OK, fine. Great. Um, but how about coming out and saying, hey, our goal is Mars or having having the uh, the president come out and say, yes, our goal is Mars It is a long term goal. However, we need to develop the tools to get there. Here's what we're going to do. Here's our step-by-step deal, and this is what 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 our ultimate goal should be. And well, uh, right now, we don't have that. Uh, there isn't a plan articulated yet.
2: Well, yeah. I'm going to disagree with some of that because um, I really think we're I think we're talking crazy to talk about Mars and to some extent even the Moon. And uh, this kind of brings up some thoughts that I've been. Developing in my uh, in my mind for a while, that uh, I really feel like even with the amount of time that uh, we've spent, America and the, the the global community has spent in space, that we're more at the point. Let's use the uh, the push west across the across America during several hundred years ago. You know, because we've got a few wagon trails blazed across the continent, it doesn't mean we know what this you know, the the current United States of America, what it held back then. You know, there's a whole lot of land in between those trails across the country. And I kind of feel like that's where a lot of space is. I mean, uh, we got another topic we'll be talking about shortly that, that I've got some thoughts on, but um, I don't think this is the time to be developing technology to go to Mars. General thought that I don't think low Earth orbit is, is anywhere as close to routine yet. I think there's a whole lot of things to learn and um, I'd like to talk more about that later.
0: Again, I'll I'll I will say I'll 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 agree with you, Mark, in principle. But I, I still say that I'd like to see the the plan. I'd like to see the overall plan as far as getting to Mars. And I, again, I just don't see the incremental plan yet.
1: For those of you listening, the stuff that's been cut out is up deep, to say the least. And uh, wait. <laughs> Graphic and interesting and listener discretion is advised.
2: And it will be covered on a future show more in-depth. We will have some fun with this one. Oh, no, you're kidding. No, we we'll, we'll may even
1: use talking on it. Who knows? That'd be fun. Yeah, for, since you're not the ones editing. <laughs> so, once again, before we just get too far out of hand, which it seems to have already gotten, let's discuss... Our next to last topic, which is in the newest edition of Space News, which was released on, on this case, it was announced on March 11th, 2010. The partners of the International Space Station, who have met and have already agreed to keep the International Space Station going to at least 2020, are now currently working to certify on-orbit elements through 2028. So, what do you think? Well, if you look at um, what happened
0: with Mir, um, after how many years, uh, that thing was sort of falling apart, and it was sort of limping along by the time the the shuttle Mir program started anyway, and that was what, 1990, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, 1995,
1: 94, somewhere around there? 94 96, I want to
0: say. All right, thank you. Um, so, who knows? But uh, the 2028 date, according to the article, was selected because it would mark the 30th anniversary of the first uh, ISS module, which uh, I believe it was our good friends in Russia placed in orbit
1: 19, in
0: 1998.
1: Yep, Zarya.
0: Yeah. They uh, they were also trying to figure out how you can go ahead and do – how you, you know what the technical uh, – what technical hurdles would they need to jump over? Uh, to go ahead and continue um, ISS opera- ops through that period of time. It, it would I think it'd be a formidable challenge, but can they pull it off? I don't know. Um, they can indeed pull off till 2020. Uh, that's what everybody sort of agreed to. In fact, uh, everybody was sort of congratulating the Obama administration for going ahead and greenlighting the uh, ISS through 2020. Um, but uh, <clears throat> as far as 2028, I don't know. You know, we'll have to just—that's sort of a, a wait and see type thing. It might be, it might be just something hopeful, but we'll, we'll have to see.
2: My thoughts is no way. It's it's too long a period of time. It's too complex a, uh, a spacecraft the ISS is, and I just don't see that there's going to be the capability of, of restocking it with parts as needed. And there's certainly going to be failures, and they're going to be minor things, but it's going to add up over time. And, uh, you know, they may, they may have plans to, uh, to safely scale back the ISS from its, you know, current and, and soon-to-be future expansion that will be completed on construction. But um, I can't see keeping full capability up there, crew of six, uh, you know, in the full space that they occupy now and that far in the future. But that's my, that's my thoughts as a maintenance guy.
1: I'm going to have to agree with you on this one, because taking a look at the statistics from Mir, it was first launched in 1986, and it was deorbited in 1996. So you're talking only 10 years. The International Space Station at this point is now at the 10-year, is past the 10-year mark. It's already at the 12-year mark. So, uh,
3: Sawyer, I don't think you can compare the two. You got an apple and an orange there. The Mir, who also survived a fire in orbit, the thing was, I mean, talk about a first or second generation space station. Uh, uh, uncomfortable, cramped, uh, different technologies. Mm, I don't know. I mean, this by the time we built the International Space Station, after Skylab, after Mir, we had so much more knowledge. It's so much more spacious. We've got so many better systems. I think what's important here is that we're thinking beyond 2020. And any day that we can do science on the space station is a good day. If we don't get it to 2028, I don't think anybody's going to cry. But I think if we get it past 2020, I think that's phenomenal.
2: And that's a lot of opportunity for a whole lot of science. And that's the that's the, the good part about everything that's that's taken us to this point.
0: And I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. too. I'm with Gina on this one. You, you are comparing sort of, an, you are it is an apples and orange comparison. Uh, not only did have, we have that uh, fire on Mir, but also it, uh, I believe a progress module dinged it and uh, caused one module to uh, actually become inoperative for a while. Um, I think that was on uh, Michael Foles' day um, on the international on on, uh, on Mir. In fact, memory service's uh, belongings were in that module, so he was without his, uh, without his personal effects for a while. You know, again, MIR was just not the same type of technology or the same level of technology as uh, the International Space Station is. And if we can get more life out of it, all the better. Uh, I think finally, I think the, the ISS will be used as, a, as the laboratory can be used, and that's, that's a good thing.
1: All right, now we have one last topic to talk about. And that was that Gene and I ended up going to something very exciting in New York City. And a very special thanks to listener Robert Hergenrother. I apologize if we pronounced your name incorrectly. But Robert actually sent us an email to our Talking Space account, which is talkingspaceonline.gmail.com, and notified us of an event going on at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum called the Legends of Aerospace scheduled to attend included uh, Gene Cernan, Jim Lovell, and Neil Armstrong. Unfortunately, due to weather constraints on Saturday, it was cancelled, but it was rescheduled for Sunday, which was Sunday, March 14th, 2010, at 11am. And Gene and I were both able to attend, and unfortunately Gene Cernan and Jim Lovell had prior engagements, but Neil Armstrong still stayed, and we had a very exciting time, and they gave quite a speech because there were a couple other people there too, right?
0: Yeah, um, there were two uh, uh, folks that, uh, one gentleman who uh, test flew the uh, SR-71 uh, for the uh, uh, for the military um, as, a, as sort of a test to make sure, you know, for the client that uh, the SR-71 was going to go to. Um, and uh, Brigadier General um, Steve Ritchie was another gentleman that was there. Uh, who uh, gave a rather inspirational talk about a, a rescue mission that he undertook uh, while in Korea? Um, the SR-71 was an amazing bird. Uh, Imagine going ahead and taking off in uh, Los Angeles and being in uh, oh uh, at KSC in about an hour, which is what uh, what the SR-71
1: could do. Which, by the way, just so you know, uh, he was saying that the SR-71 is not exactly one aircraft. The SR-71 was considered the entire program, and each vehicle was part of the SR-71 program. And this guy flew every single SR-71 plane and flew it on his test. Now, these were one-seaters, and he flew every single one of them, and they reached speeds close to Mach 3.4, and approached heights of close to 80,000 feet. To put yeah, that into I mean, perspective, uh, an airplane travels at about 500, 600 miles an hour, depending on where it's going to, and it only travels at about 30,000 feet.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, just to, to, for the folks that are listening, um, the whole event was uh, emceed by um, oh uh, David Hartman, uh, and it was... Uh, Concerning the fact that uh, all of the folks had traveled uh, to visit our servicemen in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, that are serving over there. And uh, uh, the whole idea was just to go ahead and give their impressions of, uh, of the job that our uh, men and women in uniform are doing there. And uh, all of them had uh, very, very high marks to give our, uh, our servicemen. Uh, that uh, are participating in, in uh, both operations in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Um, Neil Armstrong had talked with uh, one uh, serviceman who was injured in Germany, and the first thing, um, you know, they, after some discussions, Neil said, well, what do you want to do once, once you get out of here? And uh, the first thing that this gentleman said was just about uh, the feeling that was prevalent throughout the entire uh, time that they were in the hospital first thing anybody said is, I want to get back to my unit. They need me over there. And uh, it's a salute to the folks and the caliber of individuals that we have um, in the military serving today.
1: And all of the individuals that were up there and spoke also at one point were part of the United States military. And one thing that I thought was the best, the best part of the entire speech, and I think uh, you may agree or disagree, Gene, but at the very end, they had a question and answer session, and I think what's coming. Yeah, <laughs> huh? There was, yes, there was one kid who asked a question, and he said, "Do you have any regrets?" And they meant on the trip, like no, in life. Do you have any regrets? And everyone was laughing, but as they were going through their answers, I think Neil Armstrong had a great answer, and he used a quote. And what was that, Gene?
0: Armstrong had invoked Nathan Hale, and uh, some folks in the audience didn't exactly remember the quote, so he he repeated it. Um, Armstrong said, uh, quoting Nathan Hale, that uh, who was a Revolutionary War um, hero, he was caught behind British lines and hung as a spy, and before he was hanged, um, his final words were, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. And uh, I think that's rather poignant. Uh, it's something I, I chewed on for the rest of the day. And it's a, it's a big thing to say, coming from, uh, from a gentleman who uh, also did a lot of service for his country, both in the military and in civilian life. So it was, it was a rather, rather moving, moving moment. Um, but the one thing everybody underscored during the entire event, was to to go ahead and try to learn more about, you know, how you can go ahead and help not only support the guys that are over there, but also the families that are left behind. Try to do your homework. Try to see what you can do. There are aid agencies all over the place that can go ahead and um, that are are armed and, and set up to go ahead and help families that are dealing with uh, the uh, temporary uh, removal of a loved one because they are involved in uh, in military operations. So get more involved and and try to see what you can do to to help the families and and the folks that are uniform.
1: Definitely. And to start it off, I think David Hartman said it best. He said, we're not here to talk about whether we uh, are for the war or against the war. We're all here because we all support our troops. And that's true. Whether we agree with the war or not, we know those are Americans over there, young Americans. The average age on the carrier ships even now is still about 19 to 21 years old. Those are our young Americans over there fighting for us and our freedom. So whether we agree with the war or not, we still have to give them credit for wanting to do everything they can for their country.
0: It's true. And I mean, the, the another observation that... Uh, uh, Mr. Armstrong made was the fact that these kids are 19 years old and here they are working the carriers better than
1: he, he remembers. One thing I also remember about uh, Neil Armstrong, he has a very firm handshake because I actually got to shake <laughs> That's true. I got to shake hands with him not once, but twice. I felt so lucky when he first came in I said, you know, hello Mr. Armstrong, and then The second time I said hi to Neil and I gave him, uh, I was wearing my flight jacket, the same one that I have in my Twitter picture and I wear to work. And on it, each one, you know, comes with standard things on it and you can add to it. On each one of them is a Challenger Center pin. And I gave Buzz Aldrin, when I met him, I gave him a Challenger Center pin. I didn't have my jacket that time. This time I had my jacket and I wanted to give Neil a pin as well and I didn't have one. So I took the one off my jacket and handed it to him. And I said, "This is for you, you know." I work in with. If you heard of the Challenger Center, he's like, "Oh, sure." And I'm like, "I'd like to give you this pat, this pin from the one I work at the Lower Hudson Valley Challenger Center." He's like, "Well, thank you very much," and took it, and then he walked away. Oh, did you tell
3: cool. him that Buzz had a matching one?
1: <laughs> I don't know his relationship with Buzz, so I did not know.
3: Yeah, I would love to. I, I wish you had asked Neil what he thought about Buzz being on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs>
1: I know, because the funny thing is, the question-and-answer session, it was all related to the military more than space. I don't know if that was just because Gene Cernan and Jim Lovell didn't appear or what, but I would have loved to ask about that.
3: Well, they're all Navy guys, so the point was, is um, you know, it was a military-Navy event, correct?
1: I don't think they're all Navy. I think there was some Air Force in there as well. Oh, yeah,
3: well, was... I meant the astronauts are Navy.
1: One thing that was really interesting that was pointed out to me was that this was Neil Armstrong's first appearance in public where you did not need an invitation to attend since 1972. So I felt honored to be one of the 100, 150 or so people that were there.
3: Did he have security with him? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: He had like two or three guys around him and the rest of them were just standing there like, "Um, okay, I flew the SR-71. I'm the uh, last United States ace pilot. And here's this guy that walked on the moon getting all the security. All right. So it was definitely an interesting event. It's unfortunate that it was rained out the first day, but glad it was there the second day and that I got to see you there, Jean. And once again, thank you to Robert Hergenrother for letting us know of that on our email account. And with that, I believe we can wrap things up here. All right. Well, once again, thank you, a big thank you to everyone that joined us, Gene McCulka, Thank you very much.
0: Always a pleasure, Sawyer. Happy to be be
1: here as always. Gina Hurley, thank you for coming.
3: Oh, absolutely. Any conversation about Neil Armstrong is where I'd want to be.
1: And Mark Ratterman, thank you as well for joining us. Um,
2: yeah, <laughs> it's a pleasure. Had something else to say, but that left my mind. It must be time to go. <laughs>
1: I know that was very out of the blue, but anyway, before all of us here get any more insane, and again, you will never know what happened because listener discretion would be advised, and we could not keep our clean mark if we were to <laughs> play the unedited version of what you just missed. Hey, Regardless, I cleaned,
2: I cleaned up today. You can keep your clean mark. <laughs>
0: oh,
1: come on, come on, Sawyer. We did. I, I wasn't
0: that bad. <laughs>
1: Anyway, thank you once again for joining us and making this podcast a success. And have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Oh, my God.